And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. That, that's no good. You can't use that. Well, that's that. fine. That's great. That's you. <laughs> and, and I, yeah, so, so Mary Rickard is with us. And the last time, Mary, you and I talked, I guess, would have been during the lockdown over a year ago. And you were, I think, just had just finished this novel, uh, The Shipbuilder of, of, of Bell Ferry. If I'm not mistaken, uh, but the only thing I remember about that conversation is that you had just read Dracula for the first time. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I might have um, finished it quite a bit of time ahead. It, it's it's taken a while for it to get through the whole process, yeah. so I might have been just finishing a copy edit or something at the time. Yeah, that might have been. And it as well. yeah, and then I read Dracula for the first time, and I really liked it. I was, so much, so much for anybody who thinks that there's a Dracula influence on this novel, um, but there, <laughs> no, um, there, there are no. We, we should. I don't know how to describe this. I think it's a terrific novel. I'm not sure if it's supernatural at all, but there are enough openings for it to be supernatural. Is that fair enough? I couldn't pull any of the. You know, I never feel like I could pull any of the supernatural things out and still have the same story. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a ghost and there's let's see strange happenings and a lot of the folklore of the place and um, but there is a prominent ghost so yeah I, but it's it's such a bizarre place we should uh, we should describe the setting at least I guess people who had read uh, your small beer collection a few years ago will recognize the main character because there was a short story in that called the shipbuilder. Um, yeah. And so Quark, who's a great character, one of the best characters I've read in the last couple of years. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> was there. Okay. Um, and he, he's basically, he, his, he's, he's a taxidermist, a giant of a man, 6'10 or something. And he hears that his father has died back in his hometown. So he goes back. And then it turns into kind of a murder mystery for a while. Yeah. But there's a, there's a Lovecraftian sense of the town, Bell Ferry. Uh, you, you describe it in a way that sounds like Arkham or Innsmouth, except I get the sense it's not really in New England. I don't know where it is, come to think of it. I think, um, just to clarify for readers' expectations, he gets a phone call saying his father's missing. Oh, his father's and, missing, yes. Um, and, but, and he um, goes back to the town he left as basically as soon as he could as an adult. And um, I think this novel... And a lot of my work is sort of just set in a in a borderland, you know, between uh, where the where the myth mythic and dream people still interact with the mythic and um, and fantasy is is reality too. Um, so when people often try to locate some of my stories, and a lot of times they put them in places, but to me it's more like in 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 the place where we feel things <laughs> uh, most makes strongly. sense but i mean you must hear from readers who who try to google things i talked to somebody once who was a fan of yours i can't remember who i was talking to but they'd spend a half hour on google trying to figure out where Voorheesville was um and they oh. found they found places that sounded kind of like Voorheesville. <laughs> um and then with this story, it turns out if you if you don't spell the name correctly, it's Bell Bell Fairy. So the the word fairy actually is kind of in the name. Turns out if you leave the I E off and Google Bell Fairy, you get a I don't know a development in Detroit or someplace. 
and Obviously, I bet there's there, there mythic stories there too. I'm sure there are. Yeah. I definitely just um, I remember futzing around with with trying to come up with a name for the um, place, and I wanted it to sound um, sweeter than it maybe the experience of it is, and I wanted the the words to have something to do with um, how it was founded. So it was founded by a. Um, a shipwreck, and the ship was carrying bells. And I really, and I just, and I wanted it to have a lyrical tone yeah. to it. So, but, so um, did, oh, go ahead. Where did the story start for you? Mm. The story started with an empty cl- a closet. I, <laughs> I, um, years and years and years ago, wrote a description of um, an old man going into his closet, and there was, um, you know, a belt made out of knotted rope and, and, you know, a couple pairs of pants and an old shirt. And basically that was it. And, um, but I really liked, I really liked the feeling that I had around that. And um, so then I think that percolated for quite a while. And um, when I started writing it, I was going through a time in my life where a lot of, uh, you know, older relatives, nothing's, nothing super shocking or tragic, but people start dying. Mm. And I had this feeling almost as though I was like, boy, it almost feels as though, you know, I'm carrying some awful disease, you know, that all the people around me are, are not all. And, but um, I know that fed into the story that I wanted to write about somebody who was experiencing uh, that amount of loss as well. And being sort of the common element in his own mind about the death. And um, then the other thing was when I do, when I knew I was going to write something set near the sea, I like to build in a little bit of homage to other works. And I knew I wanted it to start with at the time. I wanted it to start with, you know, his name was Quark. Period. Mm. And that was supposed to be sort of a mm. nod to call me Ishmael. But um, eventually, you know, that got kind of buried into the second chapter and um, because the story started being built around the ideas of the story. So, what, you know, yeah, the, the name Quark is well, interesting. In terms of set, oh, go ahead, John. Sorry, go ahead, Gary. I was just going to say that it's, it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> I had nothing to say about the name Quark other than it's interesting. The first thing a science fiction reader thinks of is Quarks, but the second thing I thought of was Queequeg, uh, which takes us back to Moby Dick again. I Well, the name Quark was because I have really bad penmanship. <laughs> so initially, I was gonna. his name was going to be Quark with a W. And um, that's sort of the sound that people say the seagulls make, quack, quack, yeah. quack. And I think it's also a line in James Joyce. And Quark I, yeah. um, and then I don't, you know, I handwrite when I write, and I know that I looked down and I thought I thought it said cork, and I was like, oh, I kind of like that. And once I chose that name, then I looked up, you know, all the various definitions of cork. There's cheese (laughs) there's a type of cheese and then there's a a, is it star trek character and um and all and that got a little bit built into the story too and and of course the the whole thing with the stars right um which i thought was a wonderful accident or lucky find you know 
How organic is your process? I mean, they say you learn to write each novel as you go. You don't learn to write novels. You learn to write this one. You know, this mu- was this much different from writing the first book? And uh, do you find yourself an accumulator of novel or does it just come out? What was the, do I find myself a what of novel? An accumulator. Like, I mean, you're saying like you'd had this scene in mind f- that starts off oh. as a seed for the sheep, shipbuilder fairy in terms of, or fairy in terms of uh, process, is it a thing that you do that sort of like you'll, you'll have fragments and pieces and then they begin to become more, or is it more of a process where you kind of, you know what you're doing and you head off? I definitely don't know what I'm doing. I'm definitely, um, I really still am more of a gardener in my writing than an architect. And um, like the process I just described to you, well, it started with a closet. You know, that's kind of in hindsight. Now I remember I'm like, you know, I kind of had that feeling about wanting to write about somebody like that years ago and it never went away. But um, usually... uh, frequently i'll just look at the page and say write something (laughs) (laughs) and then and then i and and i just see what comes out of the pen and um eventually with a novel then it's like well this is you know this is the stuff coming out um Mm. and even as i'm writing initially it might be sort of three or four different stories and i haven't settled on which one it is it's almost it's a lot like a collage it's Mm -hmm. like let's put all this stuff down that is occurring to me or has meaning or seems to be coming from the story and i didn't know that i had this feeling around around death and um and then at a certain point out of that collage of things happening a thread becomes more apparent yeah. I try to keep writing forward when I've worked with uh, people who are working on novels. I encourage them as much as possible to write forward. But, of course, there's a little bit of going back and editing and tightening up, and especially as things become clearer. Um, and for me, in both, this is my second novel, and in both cases, I knew, I'd say about halfway through, I knew what I wanted the closing scene to be. Yeah. I know how it's ending. Um, And that really helps some of that, you know, it's very exciting. I like first drafts a lot. It's very fun. It's pleasurable. And it's always just a little scary because there every once in a while, there are things where it's just like, it's just never coming together. And, (laughs) and this one did take a while. And actually when I had the story um, published in the small beer collection, it was already the beginning of a novel, mm-hmm. but they were yeah. nice enough that I told them I didn't really want to present it as that because it was still so early in the process. Did you surprise yourself so was- uh, with, with the way that novel took turns that you hadn't expected? It's, the reason I ask that is it seems to me that by the time we get to the second half, it's pretty neatly plotted. Uh, in other words, a lot of things have to fall into place in order for the ending to work the way it does. Was any of that a surprise to you when it happened? Well, once it turns into sort of the, you know, when the mystery part really clicks in and and I knew that I wanted him to think one thing, I wanted Quark to feel like things were maybe just going really well. <laughs> and while other people were getting different impressions, and I don't think it's a big giveaway to say that uh, the people in the town begin to suspect, you know, that 
maybe he is the cause of mm-hmm. these deaths occurring. And I didn't want to put like a big um, spotlight on that. I want the reader to have the experience of recognizing what's going on in this quiet way. But I did have to take notes. You know, mm-hmm. I had to, I wrote what I was doing and then I had to take notes on who was hearing what and who was seeing what and how those things might have been misheard or misunderstood uh, to get to um, what what people think towards the end of the book. So at that point, I wouldn't say it surprised me, but I would say that, you know, I was initially writing the story with this very solitary figure and, you know, only becoming more solitary. And then I knew, well, you know, something has to happen. <laughs> and when I, when, you know, when I figured out what it was, that did surprise me. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. If that. It, oh, well, actually, that sort of, I don't know, begs the question, but is, is the book anything like you expected it to be at the point you began to realize it was going to be a book? No, I mean, I always have to confront the, I still can see a beautiful possibility in this book that I wasn't able to execute. You know, I really, one of the drafts when I was working through it was I was really hoping to build in um, details about building a ship. And I did all this research and I got all, I got magazines on wooden um, shipbuilding, um, which is, it's not easy for me to think in mechanical terms or yeah. um, or logistics or building. And at one, so that became, you know, sort of difficult and disappointing in its execution. And then I, I toyed with just having chapter headings that were kind of directions of how to build a ship. Mm. But those became, in my first novel, The Memory Garden, I did something like that with herbs and flower folklore. But it just felt like it it, it added to the story. And it added that sense of being in a garden to the story. Yeah. But every, every way I tried to do it with a shipbuilder, it seemed like a distraction. And it seemed like it took away from the story more than it gave. Uh, so... That was disappointing to me. But then, you know, I have to, and that happens with everything I write. Like there's this perfect idea and of now course. here's here's the reality and how work with my strengths to serve the story the best and, you know, let go of some ego ideas, which for me are ego ideas that, you know, like I'm going to make it, you know, this beautiful book and it's going to be how to build a ship and no it didn't end up coming out but the, the way i but, thought but, it would but, but in, the, in, in the memory garden all the gardening business was organic to the way the novel itself kind of grew the novel yeah. reads like a garden this is not a novel about building a ship it's a novel about a guy yeah. whose father is obsessed with building an ark so it's it's yeah it's not the shape of the novel it's the shape of this weird father's sort of fantasy Exactly. And it really, I do think of it very strongly as a father-son story. So I, you know, I, I, I had to let it become the story it was. And, um, and I am happy with it. Oh, I think it's, it's I think people who um, read The Memory Garden will find this more like a Mary Rickett story than The Memory Garden was. Uh, your, your setting, your outsider characters, your uh, sort of, I, I guess gothic is not too strong a word for part of it. But but the reason I started out by asking about 
Dracula, which I know you hadn't read until last year, is that I was <laughs> I was looking at the novel again and thinking I've, I've looked at it a few times since I wrote a review of it, and I was thinking, okay, there's a bit of Frankenstein in here. Uh, you've got a, a very large hulking guy who's mistrusted by the community. Uh, I don't think it's giving away too much to say that lightning is involved. Yeah. And at the same time, I thought a little bit of a maybe not a Clint Eastwood Western, but a kind of classic Western, the stranger comes into town and is distrusted by everybody. So there's a bit of that in Quark. There's a bit, and you kind of described it yourself, there's a bit of an Alfred Hitchcock hero in him, and that he happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when all these people are dying around him. And so he's like the man who knew too much or North by Northwest. He's not characterologically like that, but he's in that situation. So the way I think about this, this just opens up in all kinds of directions. Like I said, there's that semi-Lovecraftian feel of the downtown area of Belferry. And you've got... Oh, the other thing I wanted to ask about just very briefly is the way Quark speaks is this reticent, almost formal pattern of speech. Like he's not really one of them. He doesn't really belong here. Was, I, that must have been a deliberate choice. Yeah, it was. Quark's, Quark's very um, socially uncomfortable. And um, I think that comes through in his language. And he also has a, a bit of a, um, a tick, you know, where if he shakes his head no, he begins to shake. He has trouble stopping shaking his mm-hmm. head. Um, and I did. I, and it was important to me to put that into the, um, the way he spoke. And then get other people speaking too, so the new reader would be comfortable that yeah. I could write dialogue, you know, because he does speak awkwardly and and he's you know overly formal at times. I did want to say that the the Frankenstein influence is definitely uh, definitely in there, and um and it and is intentional. Well, go ahead, John, Jonathan. I was going to say, I mean, you talk about these influences, and Gary's talked about the the podcast discussion you had last year, where you were talking about reading Bradbury's Hundred Stories at that time and revisiting yeah. that, mm-hmm. and how that was obviously work that has had influence on your your career on on your writing over a period of time. Because you obviously, you know, you say I think in the discussion that you had read him earlier. Have you started thinking about where you're going next? Because I, I mean, the, the, the you know the interesting thing about things with like you know any book is that this book was obviously finished some while ago, mm-hmm. uh, and it takes time to come out into the world. It's being launched now, and it's this beautiful, beautiful edition from Undertow. I think it comes out next week. I think it's out in the world officially. Um, have you started thinking about what's next, and are the, the kind of things that you've been absorbing beginning to feed into what you're doing now? Oh, I think so, definitely. <laughs> um, I, f- I, you know, I came from before I started getting uh, short stories published. I was published in poetry, and I've been really working a lot with, you know, the forms of poetry in um, the fiction I write. I've been very interested in language. Language is a texture, and also um, sort of the shape and the structure. Mm-hmm of the stories. And I, I feel like the shipbuilder of Belfry that I, I took that as far as I feel like I can go with that at this time. So what I'm noticing about the things I'm writing now is that um, it, the language is l- less poetic mm-hmm. and um, I'm hopefully still enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing is that uh, 
very specifically, I've been very kind of obsessed for my whole writing career with misdirection and the things unspoken and the things. I, I think I maybe have taken that as far as, as I'm going to, too, because what I'm noticing is that what I'm working on now and since I finished this book is a little bit more. Um, here, I'll tell you. You asked about reading influences. So I read a book that I really did enjoy. Um, this past year or so, and I, I know that the writer worked, I could tell, you know, there was a lot of research, and it was really, really well written, and I got to the end, and I was like, well, what? I don't really understand what happened here, mm-hmm. and I was very certain that, because I, I feel this writer isn't who isn't anybody I know, and isn't part of the genre community at all but I felt very certain by reading this book that the writer knew exactly what they were doing and I figured well whatever's happening here at the end I know I could figure this out Mm -hmm. but I might have to go back and 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 do a little research and I was like well that's kind of a lot to ask of your readers and I feel you know proud of the things I've written and done and I, I never did anything for any any reason beyond trying to write the stories I wanted to write. But the, that experience made me feel like, oh, I, I'm not sure I want to do that to my readers. I think I want to be a little bit more out there, mm-hmm. more um, more generous, or perhaps just say that, you know, I now feel less interested in exploring, you know, uncertainty and misdirection. Um, and I do see that in the in the work I've been doing since The Shipbuilder. Do you think that that is a response to what you've been reading and writing yourself, or also to some degree thinking about it, because these are the sort of questions people are starting to think about now, to the time we're going through as well, that maybe there's a time where uh, clarity and... Um, Plain speaking, almost is, is is uncertainty is something that you crave a little bit, and so adding that into your work is something that is subtly coming in rather than being an overt dis, you know re- response to the times we're in. I think if I understand your question, you're asking if like if I feel that the time we're in now, where there's so much that's uncertain, yes, yes um, makes me feel. Like okay, we have enough uncertainty. Absolutely, <laughs> I during the um the time where we were you know just being at home and everything for the for the pandemic, this past year I wrote a novella, um, which I haven't sent out yet or anything. I'm just letting it sit for a while. But I I know I couldn't have written I wouldn't have written that novella at another time, and I know it, it was it's definitely influenced with, you know, let me just be clear here. And it was also very entertaining for me to write, but it's a, it's a little, people are a little unkind. There's a little bit sense of, you know, you live in this very, not you, but the, with the, in I live in a very sweet town. You know, I really do live in a place with three candy shops and, um, and little parks everywhere. And the experience, sort of horrible experience of the very first time taking um when we first were in what we called lockdown here and I took a walk and I had stopped to look at some ivy on a building and I was just and you know nobody else out I was looking at this ivy on a building um 
But it turns out there was somebody out and she walked right into me. I mean, she walked right up to me and brushed into me. I don't know. Maybe she was having a really horrible morning or maybe she was you know, just super distracted. But it felt almost like such a weird violence because it was at that point where I was well, mm. where I still didn't know, like, where where does this come from? Can we touch? Should we be near at all? You know, and. I do feel like that influenced um, this novella I just finished, which is a feeling of like, we all look so nice, you know, but ha a great many people in the United States are are willing to kill you, you know, just yeah, by, yeah. Um, because... Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I, you know, so yes, <laughs> I, I definitely feel the influence in my writing of the times. Well, I mean, but, but that's always been the case because one of and, the things that was, well, if I'm, 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 excuse me if I get titles wrong, but doesn't Map of Dreams begin with the Annie's daughter getting gunned down in New York? Uh, and that's. It's in there. And. Gary, you never have to apologize. You remember my stuff better than I do. <laughs> like, yeah, she's a, her daughter is a, um, at the time. Yeah, my point is going back a, to those stories we were writing before the early two thousands. There's a kind of look at them today. They almost look prophetic. There's a lot of intolerance and a lot of uh, hatred and. Uh, Othering, I guess, is one of the words they use now, uh, where you have a kind of f foreign family that moves in with completely untraceable names. I keep wanting to say cats and jammer, but because that's <laughs> something like that. <laughs> that's in bread and bombs. Yes, that's, that's it. Yeah, bread, bread, and bombs. And bread and bombs yeah. seems to me to be this year's story. And you wrote that, what, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? I wrote that after 9-11. Okay. And I, I, I remember very clearly saying, okay, you know, what's the very worst, if you take this where we are now and you take all the worst to the worst to the worst, what happens? And what happens is you burn down the house, you know, that it's all gone at the end. And it's not all gone from the outside. It's all gone from the inside. It's all gone. It's destroyed, you know, from the inside. And, um, yeah, I'm not interested in doing that anymore. <laughs> I'm not interested in trying to figure out where we're going to go next. You know, th that's also something that I've noticed in my writing um, since the pandemic is I, it's, I just am really interested in it being, well, I just described how I was influenced about sweet people mm -hmm. wanting to kill each other. But on this other way, it was very entertaining to write. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and do you feel there's more, sorry. No, you finish. You're probably going to ask the I same question, say, I, so I want to see if you ask. Well, the well, my, well, the question I was going to say was, you've got this desire for for clarity. Uh, do you also find that you're that you're feeling more uh, urged to write to, to do more because of the circumstances we're in, or is it all still kind of pretty much as it's always been? I think. I feel, I don't know if it's because of the circumstances we're in or because I'm, you know, turning 62. I do feel more like, get it done. You know, if you have these things to say, you know, you better start saying them and make sure you're writing everything you want to write. And um, I think it's more about my age than about the time we're in. Yeah. I guess what I was going to ask is uh, related to something Jonathan asked a few minutes ago. You've got two novels now a number of novellas and shorter fiction. Um, and I've, I've been reading a, a, a number of collections in the last couple of months by people who say that 
they're uncomfortable with the short fiction because they really feel that they're novelists and the short fiction are simply trial areas. And other people saying, uh, I'm terrified at the idea of writing a novel because I've, because I've been successful with short fiction. Do you have a sense now whether you'd, whether you would prefer just general short fiction, novella-length fiction, which is kind of its own thing now, or would you feel more comfortable with more novels? Right now, at this time, I think I'm feeling novella-y, you know. Which, which what attracts you to the form? Yeah. Pardon? What attracts you to the form of the novella that, that makes you feel novella-y? I think, I think what I'm liking about it is that there is enough space to get to develop the characters and the situations between them. Um, but because of the way I write, I sort of... If I'm writing a story, story, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm having trouble with answering this question. But I think that's part of it, is that I really do like hanging out with the characters, and I like seeing the interactions between the characters. And there's a little bit more, um, well, there's more opportunity for that in a novella than a short story. I do love short stories, but I do like that lingering relationship with the characters. When the novels... The lingering goes on rather long time for me, <laughs> and it's it's pretty pretty painful. It's a, I mean I'm I love it at the beginning, and then uh, it, it 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 takes me a long time. The Shipbuilder is a fairly short novel, and it, it took me years and years. And it's just like I end up with boxes and boxes and boxes of draft work and papers. And I like to work, but um, it's 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 kind of exhausting. And I find that a novella gives me just that time for building the relationships and that sense of expansion, but that I can get them done. You know, I can, I can write a novella in six months, um, but a novel, both of them, which are short novels, both of them took me years. Does it make it easier for you to uh, consider writing novellas more in the future because there is a stable market for them now? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think that has a lot to do with it, too. There are some market considerations. I, I, um, yes. Well, you want to be read, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to, I, of course, whatever the story that comes, comes. And sometimes, oh, for instance, whenever it was, Ellen Datlow was looking for, um, submissions for her, um, anthology of Shirley Jack's story, um, in tribute to Shirley mm -hmm. Jacks. So I started writing a few different things and everything I'd write at a certain point, I was like, well, this is just going to be too long. And I would never think like, well, squeeze it in, you know, make it a shorter one. I, I, I think that I feel like I have to honor the story that arrives. But at this point, like if a novel arrived again, I would be like, please go away. You know, it would have to knock really hard because <laughs> the time is becoming more limited. And, um, and it just does. It just takes so many years for me to do it. So if a, so with the Ellen Datlow situation, I ended up with three or four beginnings that I decided, well, these are novellas. And one of them is the one I just recently finished. And then, um, and then when I sit down and write a short story, I do enjoy it very much. But it's just, I think, um, so there is market consideration, but of course I would write whatever it turns out to be. Of course, yeah. 
Well, the, the novella is, uh, Jonathan's right, it's a thing now. It's, 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 it's a much more coherent market maybe than it's ever been. But it's simply a measure of length. It's not necessarily a measure of structure or anything like that. And one of the things which has always sort of fascinated me about a lot of your short fiction, not all of it, is that there are stories within stories. There are stories, there are pathways leading in other directions. Uh, recently, and I'm trying to remember who said this, but recently I was reading through Twitter and a writer, a very respected writer who we all know and and respect and is very good, and I can't remember who it was, was being asked, was being asked about a perfect short story. And she, she, all I remember is it was a she. And she said, read Cold Fires by Mary Rickard, um, which, wow. which is a brilliant story, but it's actually at least three stories. Yeah, Cold Fires is, boy, that's a thank you to whoever said that. that. I, I and reckon, that was if, if they listen to it, speak up, it's really <laughs> somebody that we all respect. I know, I know Cold Fires, I do remember, because it is a story within a story within a story. But I, when I do remember, I thought of that as a, a braid. And what I, what I felt was really important with that story was that the internal stories should not have a proper ending. They kind of trail off so that the external story that contains them is the story with the ending, you know, that brings it all together. So I think that's a little bit of a trick when you build stories within stories. There has to be um, enough to propel the reader, and it has to be enough that also speaks to the larger story. It can't just be there as, um, as a show. Or like, I'm not sure what else to do. <laughs> it also has to be speaking in another way to the themes or the concerns of the larger story. And then, um, but it shouldn't be complete. No. In most cases. Yeah, that's how I feel. When the ship Belder of Belferry, for example, uh, we you, you can't read that. I couldn't read it without sort of constructing my own epic of setting, of setting sail with a ship full of bells which is just a bizarre, wonderful image by itself. And that story is only implied, and yet there's a whole background epic uh, behind this village, which we are left wanting to know more about, I suppose, but not wanting to know more about at the same time. I like that. You know, I like to foster for the reader the opportunity to imagine and create on their own. As, you know, so that makes me really happy that you had that experience. <laughs> well, I mean, reading is a collaboration. Yeah. And, you know, bringing yeah, that sort I, of nature of what else you've read into it and, you know, and respond to. And that's when, you, you know, you've, I'm sure you must get unexpected reactions sometimes to work where you're going, it would never have particularly occurred to me that this is how someone might see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have two things I want to say about that. One is that I think that a lot of many times I've written things where I have started a sequel to them mm -hmm. but i always but i always i just put them away they're not good enough on their own and what i concluded is that very often when readers think oh tell me more tell me more you know it's just no it's just really very often best to um, invite the reader you you make up the story now you find out where you think this where you want to go with this yeah and um Oh, shoot. I know I said I had two things and I can't forget. Well, would you remember what your question was? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, no. well, okay. I, I, I got lost in the end. Well, uh, anyway. We're talking about stories leading in other directions, which you don't, you as the author, don't want to follow because 
you want the reader to follow their own direction to some extent. Yeah. Um, and I think reading is collaboration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Reading is collaboration. That's where we started. Yeah. And it's such a, oh, and have I ever, thank you. Have I ever heard um, somebody say something about a story and and kind of, yeah, many times. And sometimes even um, they're really unhappy with the conclusions (laughs) they come to. And, you know, I would say for years that sometimes I felt, oh, you know, what am I doing wrong? And, oh, you know, um, oh gosh, you know, they didn't like it. And I would say only recently I was just like, good, you know, it's okay. It's okay. They're reading, they're interacting. I, I read a, a, um, you know, like a Goodreads or something like that review of somebody who came to a lot of conclusions about something I'd written that was just very different from what the story I thought I'd written. And then they didn't like it. And, you know, of course, at first my feelings are hurt. And then I was like, no, this is beautiful. Somebody spent (laughs) all this time, you know, (laughs) thinking about this and wondering about it. And and I'm the person who, you know, practically threw Truman Capote's story across the room when I was young because I didn't like the ending. And then, you know, 15 years later, decided it was my favorite story I ever read. I don't mean that everybody who has an unhappy experience with things I've written, you know, are going to love it eventually. It's okay <laughs> if they don't, you know, it's just, it is, it's so cool. It's this beautiful space, you know, and they're, and they're, they're interacting and they care. They care a lot sometimes. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's actually kind of wonderful, though I try not to read too many of the comments <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, this is not a, a time for reading of comment <laughs> probably not but i mean I've, I've had the same not not being a fiction writer and not having your experience at all but i found myself getting into long discussions with people who who really after much studied misinterpretation were so convinced that that this story that i liked was bad and i finally had to realize this person who has, as you say, concluded they don't like the story, has invested far more time and and effort and, and, and psychological stress into it than I have. I just thought I liked it. It took days out of their life to figure out they didn't. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, for any kind of, you know, if anybody's, you know, working to become a writer or, or is a writer, and, you know, I think there's a lot of value in in learning how to how to source um, how to read a story and and find any commentary about it, find it sourced within the story, not within um, anything else at first. And I think that's a very important practice. Um, but for yeah, for the general reader, you know. They they get to have their feelings, even if even if, if they make me a little sad sometimes. <laughs> it's okay. They're reading. That's good. It's good. But I have had interesting comments. I wrote um years ago. I wrote a story. The title escapes me right now, but it really was about a little girl pulling the wings off of fairies. And um, I mean, it was about a lot more than that. Yeah. But it was one of the aspects of that story. And I read it at a conference someplace and a very nice woman came up to me afterwards and she said well I know 
that she wasn't really pulling the wings off of fairies. She was pulling the wings off of bugs. And she was telling me this. And I was, I just was like, well, in my head, I was thinking, well, no, she wasn't. But, but it's not my story anymore. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. I don't own it. It goes out and then people do process it through their experiences or what they, I don't know, their belief. I, I'm not sure why it went that way with her, but it wasn't my story. It was her story. But sometimes you reposition other stories. I mean, you've got a Persephone story, which is one of the most, what is it? The, cha the chambered fruit I'm thinking of. Yeah. Which is still maybe, to my mind, the most upsetting of your stories. I just find that harrowing to read. Uh, and yet it's there, there's no really disguising the fact that it's really kind of a Persephone story within it. And you must come across readers who just don't pick up the... And, and there have been mythological sources for other stories as well. And some readers obviously aren't even interested in them. And I'm sure... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, does that make any difference to their reaction to the no. story if they don't know the myth behind it? I don't, I don't know. I don't hear from enough readers in any kind of detail that I know if it, if it makes a difference to their experience. You know, I hopefully try to build my stories that there's an apparent story. And then there's, a, like I say, like a lot of myth building and a lot of mythic references or, or sometimes homage to other things in it that I think people might enjoy if they see it, but that they, it's not necessary that they do. Um, definitely, it's The Chambered Fruit is the name of that story. And that is the one that I still to this day, sometimes it, it's because it is built on the Persephone myth. Uh, the comment I just do get is you really freak me out, you know, <laughs> and I, or I have a child and I, I don't well, really want to read that it's, story it's, it's ever again. It's a nightmare. Again. I mean, it's, it's every parent's nightmare of the internet yeah. age, I suppose. Oh. But, um, so, which, which is an interesting thing because I don't think anybody's, classified you as a horror writer necessarily, although Ellen Datlow wants you to write stories. Uh, you get some stories that are, they're not graphic, but they're really disturbing stories. Do you, and it, it sounds like you're sort of moving away from that into uh, something which is, no? I mean, no. <laughs> she's shaking her head, folks. She's, she's <laughs> I think, I, you know, for so long, I didn't really, I didn't worry, and I still not worried about whatever it is people call my work, but, um, but I, I do think that, you know, I'm a horror writer, and um, I mean, the, or, or dark fantasy, and I haven't really figured out how to determine the difference between those two, um, but the, the novella I have coming out next year is called Lucky Girl. How I Became a Horror Writer, a Krampus Story. And oh. that's definitely like a horror Christmas story. And mm -hmm. I would say the novella I just finished is, is horror. Um, and the shipbuilder, I think probably I would say is, you know, gothic horror. Um, well, the problem is, it has, you yeah, know, I guess horror has so many different different definitions. These um, There's a subculture of horror writers. I don't know. Have you ever been to a horror convention, to an international horror convention, or, or, or a brand I've been to a horror. No. I, it, it, it strikes me as being, uh, as a sub-genre of, of Fantastica or something, as being somewhere off to the side of what 
you write, or maybe more, more, more appropriately, what you write is more off to the side of that. Um, I'm not sure that I would include your work in the umbrella of horror, and I'm not sure I'd include Jeff Ford's work either. Although a lot of his stuff is sort of fits into uh, in, into a kind of, I guess, theoretical idea. Of, I don't know if I'm going anywhere with this at all or not. I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't really get how people um, decide the definitions. I do know, and the other thing I really, I enjoy listening to podcasts, and I was listening to one, and I, they said that the romance writers actually came, and they worked very hard, and they came up with a one-sentence definition of, you know, what a romance story is, and it, it was something like, they said the first part was something like, you know, a romance story is a love story. And they said that took a long time to get that part of the definition. <laughs> and so I, you know, I don't, I, I would say that I, what I know of the horror um, writing as a community is that I, I, I guess they don't think that's what I do. Or if they do, um, I've never had the impression that anybody thinks so much about my work, but the the discussions that they have and the and the I find fascinating and I find um, very relevant to the way I think and to the way I approach my work. But it is a it's it's a it's, you know a vast field with a vast mm. amount of styles to it. I don't think you set out to scare people with a particular story, thinking this is going to get them. Uh, it, it just doesn't strike me being what I see in your story. But and I don't. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say there are a lot of people who are classified as horror writers who don't just set out to scare people in in, in that sense either. Um, and I remember. Uh, I think. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say a, 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 another different podcast, and I'm sorry that I don't remember the names of these people. But it was a, a woman, and she said that. Um, a therapist helped her understand, you know, why she loved reading horror because it gave her so much control because she could turn the page or she could close the book and she could be present to these, you know, horrific occurrences, which is, I feel, the human story. I mean, we do all suffer. We do all die. We do all pretend it's not happening most of the time. And some people have had just really, really horrible life stories and that there's something really valuable for a reader who can be in that space and walk away and be in that space and have that sense of control over, you know, these uncontrollable things that are so much like what their life experiences mm -hmm. have been. So I think sometimes when people talk about writing horror, um that well i don't know i know what you mean because i do know there are people who say you know i just want to scare them and and that's fun too you know it is fun um that's why i think it's why people go on scary rides and like mm -hmm. ghost stories and well what's fun about that partly it is it's it's that we are safe you know while it's going on yeah but i'm certainly no expert in it it's it's um i pretty much write what i write and then I let everybody else figure out the other stuff, where it belongs and who wants to publish it and what it is. I, I'm trying to figure out if, from what you've been saying for the last half hour or so, if you have fun writing. Because sometimes you sound like you're having a wonderful time and sometimes you sound like 
it's just a nightmare which I have to get to. Well, I'm almost tempted to say yes. <laughs> but the, the, the truth is, I really love writing. I give my myself permission to stop all the time. I mean, I don't have to do this, and 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 um, and in the end, I always come back to just how much fun I do have. But realistically, it is also it is also work, and the, and it's and it's and being a writer has also been really wonderful for me. And there's also been, you know, heartbreak, mm -hmm. but like mm -hmm. what life doesn't have all of that. And, you know, what else would I do? This is this. So I would say I feel very fortunate to be a person who found at a young age, something um, that I absolutely do believe in. I think it is a value in the world to have stories I think, um, and and I would in the end I would have to say it's love, but love composed of those aching, <laughs> difficult times as well. Let me ask you: with this solitary pursuit of writing, uh, where I mean, yes, there's community, yes, there are workshops and all these kind of things, but there's still an awful lot of you sit in a room by yourself and do a thing. How important are the moments when? you actually get to physically hold your own book for the first time. I mean, it must have been recently that you just got author copies of The Shipbuilder of Belferry, and it must have been quite a moment, I would have thought. It's it's really special. It You know, I left home when I was 18 to go be a writer, and I, I think my first pro story, you know, I, I maybe 38, 36 I don't know and I I wasn't writing every day I didn't really know how to be a writer but I was I was working at it and I started out you know sending out in the old days um manila envelopes of poetry packets you know lots of them going to the post office and actually <laughs> I was so broke then that I would literally weigh both envelopes so you know that you got the envelope and the return envelope and the poems inside well now if it comes back it's not going to have that extra envelope okay, how much <laughs> can i would i'd weigh them separately and there just were you know so many years of like w wanting to make this happen that whenever it does happen i i never take it for granted it's it's a wonderful thing and then, and then it's gone. You know, then it's like, okay. <laughs> like I well, say, yes. then there's this thing that comes up of, well, it's not mine anymore. You know, it goes I mean, out into the world. You told me a story well, once about uh, one of your first stories, and I think you'd, I, I, see if I'm getting this wrong, but people, you kept trying to fix the stories by taking the fantasy element out. People had told you to do that. And somebody, maybe at FNSF, said, don't said basically the fantastic element is what you're doing here. Does that ring a bell at all? Not at all. Okay, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think. Uh, I I will find this somewhere in my memory. Uh, okay. But uh, forget I said it for the time being. Okay, and uh, yeah, probably like later I'll go. Oh, I know it. Yeah. But I don't remember. I I will say. Um, one of the people who who wrote a little blurb for um, Shipbuilder was Douglas Glover. Uh -huh. And he was a teacher of mine 
as an adult, I took a workshop through, um, well, I don't know. It was in, it was in upstate New York and he's the writer who he said to me, you know, you're a Gothic writer. This is what you do mm -hmm. and don't change it. Cause I was in a workshop with him and other writers uh, and the other writers just always seemed very baffled. <laughs> I know I wrote a story about a woman who glowed all the time. You know, she just had this problem with glowing. <laughs> and um, I'm trying to remember what else I wrote in there. But they were definitely confused by what I was doing. And and I will always be forever grateful to him because he did say mm. to me, you just keep doing this. Mm. So I don't know if that's the story. It might about. be something like that. And there certainly seems to me to be more acceptance among the, what I think of as the academic literati, in other words, people who might have been kicked out of the Iowa Writers' Workshop 20 years ago, can write stories like yours, like Carmen Machado's, like Kelly Link's, like Jeff Ford's, and it's no longer just Im immediately dismissed because it's fantastic. So I think that's a, a sign of progress, and I think you've contributed to that. Oh, thank you. I don't know that I have, but thank you, I, <laughs> and I'm glad to see that progress. I still think, well, a few, well, more than a few years ago, I went to, um, you know, that AWP. Association, Association of Writing, Writing yeah, Right. I've been to one of those. Yeah. It was in Seattle. And um, I live in such a tiny town. Well, not that tiny, but it's, I live in a small town so that mm -hmm. when I go to other places, the best experience for me as a writer is often just, you know, walking this walking around and looking at the stores and talking to the people who live there. And I, so I didn't really do that much within the conference itself, but the, the spontaneously, I would have conversations with people who um, didn't, you know, were not responding to me as, as a writer or, or what I write. They didn't know who I was, you know, in any fashion, but they would all admit as though this was some kind of big secret. I like. <laughs> I like science fiction. I like, you know, and I, I did walk away from that saying, well, it's better, but still people feel like they have to whisper. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've had that. <laughs> That's what I'm saying is less than it used to be. I remember I, I remember being at conferences uh, once with, I think, with Neil, Neil Gaiman and Peter Straub and a bunch of academics, all of whom were very reserved until we went to the bar afterwards, at which point these English professors would admit that they were complete fans and they wanted to sign books and things. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what's... Well, I do know. I think that I've... Years ago, I read that Gothic by um, Bodinger or Bodinger, however you say his name. And, uh, you know, he, he... You know what I mean? And he says in that book, he really associates... Um, I think it, when people began, oh, wait, let me, let me just organize my thoughts. But basically that right around, I think it was the, he thought the Victorian time where reading the, the dramatic works was considered and, you know, and expressing um, uh, deep emotions, public emotions mm -hmm. that became considered sort of lower class. And so that the fiction associated with bringing out those kinds of emotion also became considered, you know, lower class. And I believe that we're still struggling out of that divide that thinks, well, you know, you're not, you're not 
classy <laughs> if you're enjoying, you know, the scares and the chills and the screams and the chuckles, you know, that the epiphany is reserved for the the classy people. And I think we're still coming out of that a little bit, but I hope we're on our way. Well, I mean, that's when you get Shirley Jackson and uh, in the Library of America, or whatever else, surely you're drifting mm-hmm. in that direction, at least. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, we're at the top of our hour. We should probably begin to wind up. Okay. I want to first, I want to first of all remind everybody that The Shipbuilder of Bell Ferry by M. Rickett is out from Ondertow Press or Publications this coming week. We'll put links in the show notes so you can get a hold of it, do pre-order and everything else. But for now, Mary, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. We thank really you both it. so much. Maybe I'll get to see you in reality sometime. Sometime soon. We'll We'll we'll, we'll make time. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Until the next time, though, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.